Thank you, Carol. Well, good morning. Man, it's always so good to spend time with you and uh, remind ourselves of this great God that we have and uh, His great work of salvation towards us. So, uh, thank you. It's nothing like sitting in the midst of the choir, uh, hearing people declare the excellencies of our God. Uh, On the back of your bulletin, you'll notice an invitation to our house Uh, kind of a reception for our son Jason and his new wife, Libby, um, since they got married up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, let me tell you why we do that um, and why everybody's invited to it, because uh, I think Jason's 23. (laughs) He's close to 23. Um, 23 years ago, Camilla and I stood here in this body and dedicated ourselves Uh, to the raising of Jason and Jason to the Lord and you, whoever of you who were here 23 years ago, dedicated yourself uh, to assisting us as parents and working in his life. And uh, much of who Jason is today is a result of this body Uh, in our lives and in Jason's life. And it would be only right that we have a reception and, uh, and invite you to come and just rejoice in their marriage and what God has done. So, if you know Jason, you know us, you've been a part of that, you are certainly welcome to come. If uh, you're just looking for something to do on Sunday afternoon and you want a free lunch, um, you're welcome to come. That's kind of the way family works, doesn't it? Sometimes you're in the midst of making it happen. Sometimes you just get the benefits. Um, So either way, uh, it's just kind of an open house with some food, and uh, you're certainly all welcome to come. We very much view this church as our family, and we'd love to have you. Well, turn over to Philippians chapter 1, and we want to continue in this amazing letter. Uh, Here's the thing. People will often ask me, what's your favorite verse or favorite passage? It just happens to be whatever I'm studying the latest wherever I'm camping. Maybe that's because I can't remember what I did two weeks ago. That may have a lot to do with it. But, uh, but this book has just really come to life for me, and I hope in some kind of a way the Spirit has been blessing it in your life as well as we go through it on Sunday morning. Um, verse 1, uh, Paul describes his relationship and Timothy's relationship to Christ Jesus as he is the master, and they are bond servants, they are bond slaves. They have bonded themselves to Christ Jesus in what he describes as a slave and master relationship. And so really, I believe that the whole point of this book is a call to live as bond slaves of Christ Jesus. Um, And of course, the way we express that verbally is we call Jesus Christ, what? Begins with an L, second letter is O, Lord. All Lord means is master. And when we say that, we're saying we're your slaves. And, um, and uh, you know, that's lived out by saying not my will be done, but your will be done. And, uh, and so that's, I would say, what this whole book is about. Now, last week, 
We looked at some of the dynamics of why they were so close together in that they're fellow participants in the grace of God, and they're linked together as partners in the gospel. And then we looked at this prayer because when you initially hear the whole idea of being a slave to somebody, there's something within us that the alarms all go off. And, and that would be true if Jesus Christ was a person and a sinful person, but he's perfectly God, so he's a perfect master, he's a perfect Lord. And interestingly enough, the way that this relationship of being a slave to Christ is developed is by his love abounding more and more in our hearts. It's not a relationship where we suck it up and we work harder and we do all of that. That even would come as a result of a love for Him, a love for the Father. And so this prayer is down there in verse, uh, well, begins in verse 8 and so on, but that the prayer, the love will abound more and more. And we walk through that prayer. This has become, uh, no surprise here, my favorite prayer of the New Testament, uh, that, uh, man, and I've been praying it for you all this week. I've been praying it for myself and my family uh, because the more the love of God abounds in our hearts, and remember that's the word agape love. It's the selfless love. It's the sacrificing love. It's the love that does what's right, expecting nothing in return. The more that abounds more and more according to true knowledge as Paul prays. In other words, in a true knowledgeable relationship with God, with Christ, with the Spirit, then all of a sudden you have the ability to discern things, what is good and what is evil, but that's really not his emphasis here. It's what is excellent and what is secondary. In other words, if you will, the difference between what would be good and what is best. And as you have that ability to discern that, then he prays, oh man, would we approve of the things that are excellent? Why? Because it accelerates our life. It causes us to have a life that is excellent in ways that is not possible any other way. And then he goes on and says, let me just tell you three results of this excellent life. He says, you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day blameless without shame. Now, he's not talking about getting to heaven. They all have heaven uh, signed, sealed, and delivered, right? That happens through justification. But he's talking as you live your life that way, you'll be able to stand before Christ one day and you'll say, well done. Well done. Gold, silver, precious stones for all of eternity for you. The second fruit that he says is that there will be a fruit of righteousness that comes out of our lives to the people that are around us, so that when we interact with them, they will taste and smell and see Jesus Christ. Oh, don't they need that? The third fruit is, oh, we live to the praise and glory of God. Not bad for three fruits of living, huh? And that all comes because the love of God abounds more and more in our hearts. Now, you might say, that is great in theory. How does it work out in practice? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what we go into next. Especially how does it happen and how does it work in circumstances that are just not what you would ever pick for yourself. There are things that you end up in the midst of that when you became a Christian, 
you didn't know this was part of the deal. And if you had a personal choice in this, you would not have selected this particular thing. Well, Paul is going to walk through his circumstances and describe how it is the excellent choice for him and why it is the excellent choice for him. And so we jump in at verse 12 this morning. We're going to go down to the first part of verse 18, actually the end of the sentence there in verse 18. So follow along with me, please. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Let's pray together. Well, Spirit of God, we pray that you would cause your love to abound still more and more in each of our hearts, and that this passage would help us to know you and the Son and the Father more truly. And so we wait upon you to accomplish what you love to do, and it's in the name of Christ that we do this. Amen. Amen. And so Paul jumps in here, and he says, so how does this call, how does this prayer work out in a real life? How is it working out in my personal life? down there in verse 12 that really says uh, so much about this. And so I want to really just have us camp on this phrase where he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, when he says my circumstances, quite literally, the translation is the things which have happened to me. Uh, the things which dominate me, the things that are controlling my life. Uh, it's a very uh, graphic term of those things that have happened to him over which he did not really have any choice. The things that have come in upon him and are now dominating his life. And you might say, so what are his circumstances? Well, the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, is sitting in a Roman uh, well, well, maybe probably under house arrest, but nonetheless, he is a prisoner. He has been a prisoner in one form or one place, one form or another, in one place or another, for about four years or so now, three, four, maybe even five years. How did that happen? Well, he was headed down to Jerusalem, and he's taking a gift of money there to help the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he was warned by some really God-fearing prophets and prophetesses not to go, that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and carried away from Jerusalem, not under his own will. 
Paul evidently believed that that was the excellent choice, nonetheless, to go to Jerusalem, and so he did. And there's some circumstances happened there. Uh, he got arrested and, uh, for his proclamation of Christ and what it means to live as a Christian. You can read it in Acts 24 and following. And so he ends up going from there and going up to another prison because there's a plot against his life by the Jewish people. He goes up to another prison and he gives his defense. And and when Paul gives a defense, it's a defense of the gospel. He always shares his testimony when he stands before rulers. And, And he ends up getting left in this prison for two years. Well, finally, because uh, the ruler's going to turn him back over to the Jewish leaders, he uh, makes an appeal to Caesar. And once you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you go. And so he's put on a ship, he makes the trip over to uh, Italy, to Rome, and he comes into Rome, and indications are that he was under house arrest. We read this in Acts 28. It says he lived... This is the last two verses of the book of Acts, actually. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. How'd you like to go to jail and have to pay your own way? Do you know that's the way it is in most countries? In most countries, they'll put you in prison. If you want food, you better have friends that'll bring it to you. If you want any toiletries, if you want water to drink, you better have friends. Well, this is even worse. He had to pay for his own place. And welcomed all who came in, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Now, without hindrance, you need to understand, without hindrance of talking about Christ. And so he is there under Roman guard, and there's great freedom for people to come and go. Now, while he was there, he wrote the books to Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. In the book of Ephesians, he gets to the very end of the book, and he asks the people in Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus, to pray for him. And this is that prayer. And he says, also, if you'll pray for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Here's the phrase I really want us to capture this morning. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So while he was under house arrest, he was chained 24-7 to another Roman soldier. The word for chains there literally is used of the chains between a prisoner and a soldier. And so while he may have great freedom for people to come and go, he is 24-7 for two years chained to a Roman soldier. That's his circumstances. He is chained. Now, these particular guards are not just any guards. When I say social, or social security, when I say, I better look at my notes here, secret service, man, oh man, where did that come from? I guess I'm ready for retirement this morning. Anyway, when, when I say secret service, what comes to mind? Yeah, it's the particular people to guard the president, the executive branch, right? They're not just any law enforcement agency. They are a very specialized law enforcement agency. Well, in the next verse down, we're told who these soldiers are. 
and they are part of the Praetorian Guard. They are the Praetorian Guard. Praetor, Praetor is the Latin for uh, emperor, and so this was the guard that was not only to guard the emperor, protect the emperor, but to do the emperor's will. They were a very select group of men. They would be what the, you would often call the, the proudest and the bravest. They had to be of Italian birth. There was 10,000 of them, and uh, they would serve for 12 years. Later, 16 years, they'd get twice as much pay as any other soldier, and they would get a lot of other special privileges. This group, this Praetorian Guard, had such a status in society that oftentimes they had more power than the emperor or Caesar did. And in fact, when a new emperor came in, one of his main jobs was to curry the favor of the Praetorian Guard, because you wanted them on your side. And so think about this. Paul is chained up not just to any soldier. He is chained up to some of the meanest, baddest, proudest, most arrogant men in the Roman Empire. 24-7. What does that accomplish? Well, this next phrase says, have turned out. What's the result of my circumstances of being chained to such men like this? And this next phrase is really a cool phrase, for the greater progress. This is a word that was used to describe a lead element when the Roman army was coming to a forest that they wouldn't be able to march through. And this lead element would cut down the trees or clear things so that the main body of the military could move through it. And Paul's saying, what has this done? This has allowed greater progress of the gospel. I have gone in front of other believers to clear the way for the gospel. I am making a path with people who would never be reached. I mean, when Paul came into a town, he wouldn't say, where's the Praetorian Guard? I'd like to stay with one of them tonight. They wouldn't. I mean, would, can you imagine a Praetorian Guard said, I want a Jesus follower to talk to me. No, they don't think like that. They're in two different orbits. So what does God do? You talk about captive audience. This puts a whole new definition to the deal. They probably thought Paul was the captive. They ended up being the captive audience. Here they are chained to the apostle Paul. And I mean, can you imagine this? Believers are coming in. He's talking to them about Christ. He's talking to them about the gospel. Who's sitting there listening to him? Who's chained there? listening to him. Maybe unbelievers came in. He got to watch people come to Christ. You know, in the midst of it all, he writes five letters to become the New Testament. Guess who heard him first? The Praetorian Guard. They listened to Paul pray. They probably listened to him sing. I mean, oh, God's so good, isn't he? I mean, he Throws Jonah out of the boat, he's got a fish. Puts Paul in prison. Oh, this Praetorian Guard, he's a really arrogant guy. Chain him up next to the Apostle Paul. Oh, what about this guy? I'm drawing this guy to me, and he doesn't even know it. Chain him to Paul. Oh, greater progress 
of the gospel, of the gospel, um, the good news. It's a word we use a lot. There's a lot of ways to describe the gospel. Uh, one of the ways to understand what the gospel is is to understand that we and every single person who's ever been born into this world except Christ are sinners by nature, and we act out on that sin. There are two payment plans for sin. There's the personal payment plan where you pay for it in some ways during this life, but the full payment comes when you take your final breath and you have to stand before God and you have rejected Him. And the consequence of that is anything good from God is removed. Creation, relationships, enjoyment, and the absolute void of God causes a weeping and gnashing of teeth and absolute darkness and torment when you are left to yourself. That's the personal payment plan. Why is the gospel called good news? Because the gospel says God paid the price for your sins. God the Father so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ came. He lived a perfect life. When He was crucified on the cross, He personally paid for the sins of all those who would ever believe in Him. That's the good news. You don't have to spend eternity paying for your sins in hell. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from having to pay for your personal sins. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you not only move into a place of absolute absence of the goodness of God, you move into a place of absolute perfection of the goodness of God, which we loosely call heaven. That's the gospel. The gospel is God has paid for our sins in Christ, and He has granted to us life eternal and life abundant. Paul says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of this gospel, to get the good news into a place where it has never, never been before. And so, we can just sum this up by saying, how? How has this resulted in the greater gospel? Well, it reaches an unreached group of people. It gets the gospel into a group of people that have never been touched by the gospel. They're Praetorian Guard. And it even goes on to say at the end of verse 13, and to everyone else. And so the gospel goes to the Praetorian Guard. Reaching such people like this is always a focus of our ministry here at Calvary. It may be hard to believe, but there's still people in parts of the world who have been untouched by the gospel. They have never heard what you and I take for granted. And I just want you to know, as you give to the ministries of this church and as you pray for this church, part of what you're doing is to get the gospel into those places through our missionary partners. And so we've got people like the Humbles and the Hermans up in 
an island in Indonesia where they moved there several years ago because there was at least 10 groups of people who did not have any Christians even trying to reach them. And there's a good reason for that. It's a tough place. It's kind of like the Praetorian Guard. And even praying uh, for Romina and family there in Pakistan. Uh, there's people that don't know. They may know the word Christian, but they don't know the gospel. And so it will continue to be an emphasis and something we stay at here at this church in our ministries. It's also something, though, that we're surrounded more by in a lesser extent to every one of us as we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. And so it's something that we encourage all of us to do. Who are the people that God's put in our lives? Now, maybe He hasn't chained them to us, but He has just as providentially caused us to be working with them or to be living in the neighborhood with them or to be in some club with them or all of you students. You probably don't want to hear me talk about this, but school's coming up. God providentially will put people in your orbit at school for the very reason that God put the Praetorian Guard soldiers in Paul's life. And so we need to lean into this thing. And we need to understand it's part of what we get to do in reaching unreached groups of people as a church and doing that through our own individual lives as well. And so that's the first way that it's resulted in the greater progress of the gospel. There's a second way in verse 14 that his imprisonment has been... Oh, by the way, I missed this cool play on words there in verse 13. Okay, we'll come back to that in just a minute. His imprisonment literally is his bonds, his bonds. I think there's a play on words with bonds there in that verse and being a bond slave of Christ. I think there's just a really cool play on words because it, it, what, what that verse says in verse, uh, where are we at here? Verse 13 is he says, it became obvious that the reason I'm in prison is because of my relationship with Christ Jesus. Or to put it this way, the reason that I'm in prison is because I have bonded myself with Jesus Christ. I am a bond slave of Christ, and I was unwilling to let that go. I was unwilling to compromise with the Jews. I was unwilling to compromise with Felix and Festus and the Roman rulers. I always chose my bond relationship with Jesus over compromise. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. And I want to just say to us, when our circumstances are a result of us being a bond slave of Jesus, it will always turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so the first reason is, is it reached the Praetorian Guard there, verse 13. The second reason, verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so here's a second reason. Uh, is that it encourages believers to witness. It encourages believers to witness. Get kind of warm? Say yes. All this hot air, you know. 
It encourages people to witness. Look at how it's phrased there. Um, most of the brethren, you could say brothers and sisters there, most of my fellow believers uh, are trusting in the Lord more because of my imprisonment. In other words, they have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Living in Rome was a tough place to live. In Rome, you were expected to worship the emperor. He was a deity, and they also had a pantheon of other gods. For you to say that you were a Jesus follower, and for you to say that other people needed Christ as their Savior, that could be political suicide. It could be mean losing your job. Certainly, people would look at you as uneducated and stupid. It was a tough environment. And they saw Paul. And they saw how he's chained to the most elite soldiers in the Roman army in the world of the day. And how he had such a confidence in the Lord. And he spoke the word of God without fear. It energized them. They said, if Paul can do that, I can do it. And so there's this secondary effect of Paul's imprisonment. If he can do that, same Lord, same Spirit within us, I can speak the Word of God to other people, to my friends, to my neighbors, without fear. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, don't we experience this? It's one of the great necessities of being in a body of Christ where you're working at sharing the gospel. Through all of your failures and your shortcomings, you need to be talking and in relationships with people who are sharing the gospel. Why? Because it invigorates you to do the same thing. By the way, Paul needed this sometimes too. Acts 28, 15, when he first came into Italy and landed there, he says, and brothers there, uh, when they had heard about us that we had arrived, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. Look at, look at what this did for the Apostle Paul. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and what? Took courage. Dear brothers and sisters, Paul needed encouragement. We all need encouragement living in a hostile world where sharing the gospel and sharing the word of God it's easy to become fearful and not do it. And so, Paul's imprisonment helped him to share the gospel. The third way that uh, the gospel advanced by Paul being in prison is in verses 15 through 18. And this one on the surface may cause some angst. May have caused some angst when I read through it. But he talks about people, some of them who are sharing the gospel out of goodwill, and some who are doing it out of envy and strife, uh, seeking that they'll cause greater distress to the Apostle Paul in prison. And so he says there's two groups of people here. Uh, now, I would say, and most people would say, that obviously they're getting the gospel accurate. 
They are accurately proclaiming the gospel. If someone doesn't accurately proclaim the gospel, Paul goes after them. Because false gospel means false belief, horrible results for the individual for all of eternity. And so he does not go after the gospel that they're preaching. He calls it the gospel of Christ. So he doesn't go after the message. The message is fine. Their motives are not so good. In fact, they're sinful. Envy and strife is sin. Trying to cause somebody who's in prison distress is sinful. And so he goes after these people. Who might they be? Well, we can, we can surmise maybe that the church at Rome was kind of like most churches, and it had some factions in it, kind of like Corinth. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. There's probably some of that going on in Rome. And, uh, and the Apostle Paul had written the letter to the Romans about five years before this, before he actually shows up on their soil. And, uh, and you know, there's just people in the church, and I think we've all been part of these people, we've been these people in the past, who, who have a competitive spirit in the church. And there was probably leaders in the church who felt threatened by the Apostle Paul, like he was usurping their leadership or something. And now he shows up on soil, and they could have even felt a greater threat. They got people in the church going to visit him and under house arrest. And, and they see him as being in prison as an opportunity for them to move their ministry forward and try to build their ministry, thinking that it would cause Paul's distress. Paul says in here that the ones who share the gospel, verse 16, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. He says, people who share the gospel out of love and, and do it with good motives, they understand that the reason I'm doing this is because God has appointed me to this. I didn't set out for this thing. God appointed me for the defense of the gospel. And so people see this as a calling of God upon my life. But he says there's a group of people who do not understand it's a calling of God upon their life. They don't see it as a way to complementary build the body of Christ and get the gospel out. They see me as a competitor, and they see me as in prison now that they can take advantage of that and build their ministries. Of course, that never happens with any of us, does it? Never felt like you're competing against other believers or churches are competing. It's sadly alive and well today, isn't it? Sometimes it's unspoken. Sometimes it's spoken. I recently heard of a church that said, we are brand A, all other churches are brand B. Uh, this is alive and within every one of us, and we have to be honest about it. It's one of the reasons we pray for our sister churches every week in recognizing we are not competing. There's a lot of lost people who need the gospel, and we want to work and complement each other. Uh, there's no shortage of lost people in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Westminster, and around, right? 
And we need to work together. We may have some differences, but we all believe the same gospel. We all have the same Savior. We all have the same Lord. One of the organizations, uh, and so Paul here says, man, whenever Christ is proclaimed, what do I do? I rejoice. I rejoice. One of the organizations, Missio Nexus, has this as their statement. The Great Commission is too big for anyone to accomplish alone and too important not to try to do together. I love that statement. It's true. It's true. Paul understood that. And what is going on here is that he, in all three of these reasons, he is not trying to say that his conditions were not miserable. They were miserable. Can you imagine never having a minute to yourself without somebody chained to you? I mean, what does this do with the whole belief of quiet time and solitude? Now, if you're an extrovert, there might be some excitement in this. But if you got any introvert in you, I think it'd drive most extroverts eventually crazy. He's not saying that suffering isn't suffering. He's not saying that being miserable isn't being miserable. It is. It is. But he's saying that there's a providential reason for this. It's not a waste. We sang about one of the reasons earlier of God conforming us more into the image of Christ even as a refiner refines gold and silver. Here Paul is emphasizing the reason is because it makes progress for the gospel. An unreached group of people are being reached. My other believers are being encouraged by the way that I keep trusting in Christ in this very miserable place. And they're being encouraged to witness more to other people. And some people, even out of envy, are preaching Christ who weren't preaching Christ when I came here just because they think it'll cause me to be bummed. And I'm just excited that they're up there preaching Christ. And so he's not minimizing the miserableness of what's going on. I think what he's doing, and here's this phrase that the whole thing begins with. Verse 12, now I want you to know, and the word brethren can be brothers and sisters. Now I want you to know, when Paul begins this section, it's as if he is saying, I want you to know something that is counterintuitive. I want you to know something is not, that is not consistent with the natural way we think. And that is that God providentially or organizes circumstances that if we'll live in a bond relationship with Christ as our Savior, will result in the gospel, getting out and encouraging people because it's a gospel work of grace in our own lives. So I was thinking about this, and I was just thinking that I think what Paul is doing is he's given us a yardstick for life. He's given us a way to measure life. Now, there's a lot of good yardsticks for life, aren't there? A lot of good ones. 
There would be the yardstick of a person's character, of your character, of your children's character, where you just uh, measure up their character. Are they truthful? Are they honest? Are they kind? Are they diligent? Do they persevere? And all kinds of things. And, and you could measure up the, on the yardstick of personal character. And that would be a good measurement. There's the yardstick of maybe skills and how good someone gets at something, whether it's athletics or music or drama or uh, debate or building things, uh, inventing things. There's that yardstick. And that's a good yardstick to measure success and contribution in this world by. There's the academic yardstick that most of you students are trying not to think about right now. But there's the academic yardstick of you get an A, you get a B, and that's the way that we measure how hard you work and how hard you've applied yourself and how much you're learning. There's the vocational yardstick of your success and how much you're respected in the particular area or field that you're involved in. There's the relational yardstick. How do you do in relationships? How do you get along with your brothers and sisters? Are you a one? Are you a 24 today? How about in marriage? How about in other family dynamic relationships? How about with friends and neighbors? There's the relational yardstick. And those are really, all of those are good yardsticks, and they're good ways to measure our life. But what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying there is a measure of life that is beyond all measures of life and should actually uh, be a part of all these different measurement systems. And that's the measure of life of the gospel. The gospel. The gospel's effect upon your own life and the gospel going out to other people in other ways. Now, you'll notice in here that Paul never says how many of the Praetorian Guard trusted Christ as their Savior. Do you notice that? He never says 20 did or 200, because that's not the measure. The measure is not how many. The measure is faithfulness to have a confidence in the Lord and to speak the Word of God without fear. Right? We sow the seed. God brings the increase. And so very much here what He has done is He's given us the gospel measure of our life. The gospel's work in our own life, so that in whatever circumstances that we're in, it's a providential place for the gospel to reach people. It will be an encouragement to other believers who see us in this place. And maybe some other people, even out of envy, will tell people about Jesus. They see you as down. They see it as an opportunity to promote their ministry. And when that happens, I trust we can join the Apostle Paul and say, I rejoice the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed. Would you bow your heads, please, and thank the Lord for the gospel to you.
And it could very well be that the Spirit has just put His finger on some places of rejoicing here, of celebrating His work in your own heart and life over the years. It could be that you're just in one of those miserable places. And maybe Paul's added a little perspective to that that doesn't alleviate or take away the miserableness, but it gives a sense of purpose in the midst of it. And I just would encourage you to trust in the Lord and have a confidence of His love for you and His purposes for you. Maybe there's a niggling or something of competitiveness against other believers or other churches that are proclaiming the gospel that needs to be repented of. And in place of that competitive spirit, a rejoicing that the gospel is going out that the spirit can use to change people forever. Father, we ask that your love would abound more and more in each of our lives as we begin this time. According to true knowledge, we thank you for the true knowledge that's come through your word and even the ability to, to have some discernment here. Thank you even for the chance to approve of the things in our own lives that are excellent. Lord, keep us in that place where we will keep approving what is excellent. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.